who are we? How do we see and experience the world? What are the hidden forces that drive us? Why do we act, think, and feel the way we do? And how can we become our best, most authentic selves? Welcome to Typology, a series of freewheeling conversations in which we use the Enneagram typing system to explore the mystery of the human personality. I'm Ian Cron. Hey, everybody. We have a big, big show for you today. But before we jump in, I have a super important request. I'm working on a book right now for folks asking the questions. So now that I know my Enneagram number, what do I do next? Or how do I use the Enneagram as a tool for personal transformation? Now, to help me, I'm asking folks to send me stories of how the Enneagram has changed their lives to possibly include in the new book. Now, these stories might describe what your life was like before you learned the Enneagram or how you discovered it, then how you've used it as a tool for transformation and how working with it has changed your life. And if you don't want to write a story, you could just simply send a short, funny Enneagram anecdote or a moment from your life. Whatever you feel inspired to write, just send it in. Now, to submit your story, and by the way, you can send me more than one, you can go to the connect page on typologypodcast.com and submit them there, or you can email them to me at writercron2, that's W-R-I-T-E-R-C-R-O-N numeral two at gmail.com. And this is really important. I promise to hold your story in the strictest of confidence and I'll for sure ask your permission before I use it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, enough jaw wagging from me. Let's get to our show. A few weeks ago, renowned Enneagram teacher and author, Dr. Beatrice Chestnut joined me on our show to discuss how Enneagram 2s see and relate to the world. And Beatrice was so great that we were flooded with requests to have her on again. And thankfully, she agreed or we would have had a mutiny on our hands. On this episode, Beatrice and I tackle the question, how do I use the Enneagram as a tool for personal and spiritual transformation? And listen, that's a great question. Information isn't transformation. If you want to use the Enneagram as a blueprint for change, then knowing your number is only the first step. So today, Beatrice and I discuss a few of the many next steps we can take to bring about positive change in our lives through using the Enneagram. Beatrice is a longtime student of the Enneagram system of personality. She's a past president of the International Enneagram Association. She is the author of my all-time favorite Enneagram book, The Complete Enneagram, 27 Paths to Greater Self-Knowledge. So my friends, take a seat, put your napkin on your lap, and get ready for a feast of Enneagram wisdom with Beatrice Chestnut. Hey, everybody. I am so excited today because I have, again, the Enneagram Jedi, the the great uh, Enneagram, I don't know, matriarch in a way. I mean, Beatrice Chestnut, who really is in the pantheon of great Enneagram teachers and experts, and I am not overstating it. She is a remarkable person. And I brought her back this week because... I have a question uh, that I get a lot from people, which is this. Okay, now I know my type. What do I do next? You know, like, insight is cheap, you know, and information is not transformation. So, Beatrice, let's just for a moment imagine I'm coming to you, and I say, okay, I've, I've discovered my, my Enneagram type. What do I do now? How, how do you answer that for people? Um, that's a really good question because the Enneagram is all about growth. And I think sometimes people think that it's, you know, it, it can be fun to find your type in the first place. And, but that's just the starting point. 
And what I usually tell people is the first thing I recommend is uh, to use the Enneagram personality descriptions as a guide to self-observation, because it's all about self-observation. And the idea that we tend to think we know who we are, we think we know ourselves, but one of the things the Enneagram points out is that we really don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. So a lot of it is just using it to really pay attention to certain things. Uh, Like, you know, for me as a two, I would pay attention to what kinds of things was I thinking about all the time and what's my focus of attention and uh, what feelings am I having? Um, And so to be really using it as a guide for self-awareness. For me as a two, one of the big things I learned in the beginning was how much I was reliant on other people's approval. And so you can take a lot of the different character traits of your particular type and just start using that as uh, an, something to focus on. Uh, so I would think about like how many times in the day I worry about what someone else is thinking about me and what does that do to me and how does it um, create walls between me and other people when I'm afraid that they don't like something I did and, do, and so I withdraw or I try to do certain things that aren't really genuine to how I'm feeling as a way to ingratiate myself. So um, really observing what you're doing and almost having an inner dialogue that goes something like, oh, there I go again. Oh, there I'm doing it again. Now it has to be really non-judgmental because as soon as you start noticing one of these things and criticizing yourself for it, you've kind of just gone two steps backward because part of what happens when we're really learning about ourselves is we find, may find out things that we don't like or we think others don't like or we just automatically uh, get self-critical about. And so the real key here is non-judgmental self-observation is to really start saying, oh, I'm doing it again. Oh, see how often I worry about this or that. All those kinds of things is the first thing I would say is just really start doing this. Now, of course, it's going to help a lot if you're not doing this by yourself. And uh, Gurdjieff, who is one of the teachers from the early 20th century, who one of the sources of the what we know about the Enneagram symbol and some of the ideas about where it comes from in sort of personal transformation work, um, he would say that alone, one man can do nothing. Uh, that really working on yourself necessarily happens in community, happens in groups with other people. So this can mean different things. But for instance, like for me, I, you know, I, I was in therapy for a long time as, as, as a therapist myself. Of course, I think it's part of the job description of you need to be working on yourself to make sure you're, you're on top of your own stuff so you don't get in other people's way when you're working to help them. Um, but one of the things that I would, you know, I would focus on a lot is noticing something and then talking about it with my therapist. And then when I talk about it with my therapist, I learn more about it. And I, you know, I, he, he would give me his insights, uh, but you can do this in a, in a relationship. If you have a good friend that's on the path with you or uh, your partner or best friends or a spiritual director, I think it doesn't really matter who in your life, but it's good to be talking about this stuff because mm-hmm. I think it brings it alive even more. Sure. So so that people are clear, because I, I think sometimes what people end up doing with the Enneagram is simply becoming enchanted, right, with this self-knowledge. And, you know, because we all want to figure out our way of being in the world or explaining to ourselves, you know, why is it that we have fallen into repetitive patterns and that have continuously gotten us into trouble oftentimes. But I think it's good to frame out what the purpose is of doing our work. And you say it beautifully in your book. It resonates with great perennial spiritual wisdom. Thomas Merton, for example, one of my, one of my great heroes, teaches a great deal about this. Human beings tend to identify who they are with their personality. In your words, we equate the idea of personality, the you who the people in your life would say they know, with our sense of identity. When, in fact, in in Western psychology, the Enneagram views the personality as a false self that develops to allow your true self to adapt, right? To fit in, to survive. These are words that come straight from you, right? Right. And so... 
that means that the personality is a defensive structure, right? It's it's made up of adaptive stratagems, coping strategies, etc. And what we really want to do is get back to our true self. So all of this work that we want to do is not navel-gazing, right, or being self-absorbed or overly self-interested. It's really to get back to who we truly are, where all of our great latent potential can be realized and released into the world when it's no longer in the prison of the false self. Is that a I, that that's just my little way of saying this is the goal. Yes, abs, abs, you're absolutely right. Uh, and so the you know the good news behind the enneagram is that you're more than you think you are. Right? Mm-hmm. We yes. identify with a personality or false self, and we think that's who we are. Now, as you're saying, this it, the personality does reflect um, the coping strategies that we adopted in childhood to survive in the world. And so, in a way, it's a very good thing. It helped us get through life, and sometimes it helped us get through very difficult circumstances, um, and that's a good thing. However, once we get into adulthood, uh, we tend to not realize that our personality is actually limiting us because we're doing the same thing we've always done according to what worked, uh, but we're doing the same thing over and over again instead of seeing uh, having a wider repertoire of strategies or different ways of being in the world. And so our personality or, our, or the false self personality is a, and is a reflection of our true self because the coping strategies that we choose are a reflection of who we are at a deeper level. However, you know, because and to the extent that they've had to be, we've needed really strong defenses, uh, these patterns can be rigid and hard to change because we can be attached to them because either they're what worked, so we have this unconscious idea we have to keep doing them in this exact same way, um, sometimes just because they're familiar and comfortable. It's what we know. Uh, we just don't know something else. And other times it's really scary to be a different way. You know, like if you're a personality type that's afraid of conflict, you know, it can feel really hard to get near any kind of conflict. Uh, whereas there are other types that actually do conflict pretty well. That's not their issue. Right. Well, what I love about what you're saying is that it kind of reminds me what this is a, you know, a cannibalization of the actual quote, which is much longer. But Carl Jung talks about how you know, this idea that the tools of the past, we tend to use tools of the past to manage the present, and it just doesn't work anymore. And so what works, I think what he literally says is what works in the morning of life, right, will essentially kill you in night, at the, in the nighttime of life, you know, as you get older. Uh, it, it subverts the life that you really want to have. And I think that's what you're alluding to. Right, right. And I'm also talking about the fact that, um, you know, we we identify with this false self, um, but we also have a shadow. That's another, you know, you know, idea from Jung, I think that he articulated so beautifully is that, uh, you know, the personality has an area of focus, but then it has a focus, an area where it's not focused and where it doesn't want to look. Um, and so exploring the shadow is really crucial work. And it's part of why I use the, uh, and what we're really talking about here generally, it's part of why I use the acorn metaphor in my book, The Complete Enneagram. And I love that metaphor and the little story, the parable that I offer in the third chapter where, you know, there's this kingdom of acorns living at the foot of this oak tree and they're going about their lives and they're doing all their acorn stuff and they're shining up their shell and going to self-help courses to be a better acorn uh, and then one day this little, this, this kind of roughed up stranger drops out of the sky, this kind of, you know, crazy looking acorn. And he sort of stammers out this wild tale, which is, we are that pointing to the oak tree, right? And so there's this way that he's saying, we are more than an acorn. And they're looking at him like he's kind of nuts. Like, how could we become this oak tree? And he says, well, I think it has something to do with going into the ground and letting the shell crack open. Then, of course, you know, the acorn is the seed of the oak tree. And, I, and so throughout the book, I use the metaphor of our higher self or 
uh, all of reaching our higher potential as this idea of becoming the, the oak tree that we are naturally meant to be. But it, it requires looking at your shadow. It, be, it requires breaking open the shell of the personality. Um, and this is why uh, when, I'm, when I'm teaching and why I'm happy for the opportunity to talk about here, if after the stage of self-observation, when we're looking at ourselves and understanding our patterns more and, and non-judgmentally just thinking, oh, there I go again, I'm doing what I do. At a later stage, after you've done that for a while, part of what needs to happen is you need to look at your shadow. You need to look at the blind spot and you need to really feel the feelings, you know, and, and some, you know, traditions and in some religious traditions and other things call this either the dark night of the soul or, you know, a method of conscious suffering. And again, this is suffering chosen consciously. When we're first in our personality and we haven't done much inner work on ourselves, we just suffer because, you know, we get uncomfortable or something comes up against our defensive structure, Right, and that makes our that can make our personality more rigid because we think, okay, I have to protect myself. I have to keep doing it the way I've done it before. I don't want to change. It's scary. Uh, but I think what happens is, if we really want to grow, if we really want to use the enneagram for inner work, we we must use it to point us to uh, the things that we need to suffer, the difficulties that we're avoiding, uh, the hard emotions that we don't want to feel, the parts of ourselves that we don't want to see. That's kind of the next big step of inner work based on the Enneagram. And the beauty of the Enneagram is it highlights our blind spots. It shows us exactly what we need to do in order to do this deeper inner work that often involves, you know, facing your deeper pain and working through uncomfortable stuff. But the reward is, you know, then you don't have to expend all the energy the personality expends uh, defending itself against new new ideas, new experiences, and often even love. Um, and in some ways, I've heard the, the the Enneagram types described as a defense against love. Because yes, I've heard that. We're yeah. doing things the same way we've always done them. One of the things we keep out is positive stuff. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes people say, oh, I'm a six, I'm a seven, or whatever. And what I, what I say to them, and it's often confusing, is... Actually, you're not. I mean, when you when you say I'm a seven, you know, you're you're actually just identifying with something else now besides your personality. Now you now you're identifying with you know, some enneagram type. But I, what I want to tell them is, our job isn't actually to tell you who you are. You know, your number. Well, our job is to tell you who you're not, and that your your personality, your personality type, is actually the person that you know you have represented yourself to be, that you have believed you are, but in fact is not who you are. And the journey now is knowing that that's your game. It's to catch yourself when you're living in this false self of your type, if you will. So describe for people what that progression of work looks like. I mean, I think you say you you start with self-observation and then you you kind of move through a a pattern uh, or a, a sequence of activities to to kind of begin to disidentify with the personality. So, so maybe just talk a little bit about that for the sure, now what. Sure, sure. So yes, absolutely. It's, it's about knowing what your personality type is so that ultimately you can move beyond it. So you can let it go. So you can drop it. Um, and so the first step is self-observation, non-judgmental, l- looking what you're doing. Um, and interestingly, sometimes things shift just through self-observation. Not everything, but some things uh, will shift just from the point of view of that, the fact that you're watching it. And so I think the next stage is, is sort of owning more things, getting more interested in a deeper self-exploration. Um, one of the ways that I think sometimes you can really know, recognize people who are really doing their inner work is, for instance, they take responsibility for the things they do. They don't have a problem apologizing for when they've made a mistake, you know, or when something that they've done, you know, just through their regular personality way of operating um, has caused a problem. Um, And I think sometimes when you notice people that aren't is they have a hard time apologizing. They can't take responsibility. So I think continuing the exploration, um, looking more deeply into things that need to be looked more deeply into. So, you know, if you're a nine and you really avoid conflict at all costs, what's going on there, you know? And sometimes this is about looking at the past 
and understanding. I mean, one of the phrases I like from psychotherapy the most is the thing we fear most has already happened. So if you had a bad experience with conflict or it wasn't allowed in your house growing up and so you learned to be afraid of it, you know, understand that at a deeper level. Where does it come from? What's your story? You know, what, why do you feel the way you do? And just continuing to ask yourself some of these questions, again, talking about these things with other people, and then eventually getting closer and closer to things that are more and more uncomfortable to look at, continuing to sort of put your feet to the fire, uh, continuing to recognize that where there are areas where it's useful to stretch right? Because the places where you know you're getting out of your comfort zone or you're, it feels like a big stretch to do something a different way. I mean, sometimes when I'm working with people as a psychotherapist, I'll suggest they, they do something and they'll say, well, oh, I could never do that, right? And as soon as you there's something you could never do, that's a big limitation. You know, so what I'll start saying is, well, how can we experiment around the edges? You know, how can we just start taking little steps, you know? And so part of it is recognizing where, what your limitations are, what the things that you never allow yourself to do, uh, what are some strategies that other types employ really easily that you don't do, but that you could usefully add to your own toolkit of repertoires of strategies for dealing with things in the world. So um, it's, it's, it's both a, a part of noticing where you're limited um, and looking more deeply into that and what keeps you limited, what feelings you're avoiding, allowing yourself to walk into some of these experiences. And again, a lot, as you can probably hear, this is greatly helped if you're in therapy or if you have a spiritual director or you're in a group or, you know, we all need support around this stuff because the inner work is not easy. It's very challenging. No. Yeah. In fact, a friend of mine says that the, the Enneagram is solitary work you have to do in community. And I, I've always loved that. So I have an exercise that because I think it's hard for people to develop the interior witness. You know, if we most of us go through life on auto self, you know, we're just kind of going along sort of ha- semi-conscious. I mean, this is a again, perennial spiritual wisdom. I don't know a religious tradition that doesn't emphasize this idea that we're all kind of moving through life half asleep, you know. So one of the, and I'll give two of them, two acronyms, and I generally don't like acronyms, but these are useful um, as a way of developing the inner the inner witness and uh, begin to do work, right? So one is SNAP. So the first thing is, you know, a couple of day, times a day, do you know, especially when you're experiencing afflictive emotions, right? So conflict or anger or sadness or whatever, that would be able to trigger that you would do a snap exercise. And so the first step would be to stop. And of course, that's a lot harder, we all know, <laughs> in our culture now than, than ever, just to stop. And, and what I mean by that is one way to do it is to just stop and take five or six deep breaths and come back to the moment wide awake. And then secondly would be to notice. And so, you know, notice what it is you're feeling. And as you said, I. I think it's terribly important for people to know that as they do their work, that change only happens in a climate of self-compassion and what Pema Chodron, I think, beautifully calls unconditional self-friendship. So when you stop to notice, it's not like, okay, it's to fix or to change or to condemn or to prosecute yourself. It's just to step back and notice what's what's going on right now in this moment? You know, I've just had a fight with my spouse or partner or I'm, you know, I'm at the office, I'm feeling sad about being, you know, passed up for a promotion, whatever it may be. Just look inside and name what's going on. Just notice what's going on. And then the third step, the A, is to ask, right? This is, I think, in your sequence, inquiry, right? Self-inquiry. And I love these three questions. I don't know if it's Tara Brack or Byron Katie who came up with these, but the first one is, what am I believing right now? And that is such a powerful question. You know, if you really stop to think about it, here you are, you're having some painful or difficult emotion. And you know, and I know that usually underneath that, there's an energy-laden belief, right? That is really beneath the waterline of consciousness that, that's arousing it. So, you know, you say, what am I believing right now? And it, it may be, you know, as we think about the Enneagram, oh, that I am what I do, you know, that my value as a three, for example, is 
based in what I do in my accomplishments, my success. And this situation right now is threatening that belief system, right? So you're just stopping and asking, what am I believing right now? And then the second question under A for ask would be, is it true? <laughs> you know, it's just, is that true? Like, is your value all wrapped up in what you do? Or if you're a two, is your value really all wrapped up and you're meeting the needs of others? Um, so you're just starting to, to ask that question. And then the third question under ask, if you choose to answer is, how would my life be different if I just chose not to buy into that belief anymore? And then the final one was P, which is to pivot, right? You just decide, well, now that I have more freedom based on my self-knowledge that I've gleaned from the Enneagram, what new choices could I make in this moment that wouldn't be reflective of my, my moving forward and growing, right? So that may be, you know, taking an alternative course of action compared to the one you've always taken before that didn't work. Right. You know, uh, it's just about living awake. That's what I hear. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. I think that's a really good way of putting it and a a convenient way to remember. That's exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking about self-observation. And it is absolutely developing, like it's developing the muscle of having that internal witness that can create a little bit more space in your consciousness so that you can self-reflect more regularly in exactly the way you're talking about. So here's a practice I want to ask you about. Um, And because, you know, it's, embedded in lots of religious traditions, including the Christian tradition, Buddhist tradition, etc. And now, of course, we know from brain science, all the because of PET scans and the work of people like John Kabat-Zinn and, and others, how a regular meditation or mindfulness practice can help people develop the attentional muscle that can serve toward being able to self-reflect and observe yourself in real time. Do you have a mindfulness practice? Do you encourage that for people to develop that muscle that can be able to step back and observe yourself in real time? Yes, very much. So I I think what what you're saying reminds me of the fact that, you know, the Enneagram is not a standalone tool. Um, It's something to be used with other modalities and other practices. And it's absolutely a requirement, I think, if you're doing the inner work in a serious way, to have some sort of meditative practice. And it can be mindfulness. It can, it can be a variety of things. And sometimes it's important to find the one that's right for you. And so that's what I sometimes do with people. Uh, but I think it, it, this is the part where you create the ability to self-observe, right? Because the whole thing, what the Enneagram tells us is, a lot of us, when we're really caught up in the personality and we're completely identified with it, we don't have the inner space to self-observe. And meditation uh, is necessary because it creates that inner space through which we develop a, a strong inner witness uh, and especially not that non-judgmental inner witness. So we don't just get caught up in self-criticism, which is not self-observation, um, to be able to pause. And so I, I usually recommend... On the one hand, I think things like therapy are important because you're understanding the patterns of your reactivity, but then I think some sort of spiritual practice is also necessary because now that helps you create the space inside to stop and notice when the reactive patterns that you've identified uh, are getting enacted. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason that self-compassion is so important is I think I said this uh, a couple of shows ago, was that, you know, I believe that love is the most powerful force in the universe, and I believe a close second is shame. It's so powerful and so toxic, and that if you move into a self-evaluative mode, particularly a negative, you know, self-evaluative mode, the true self, you know, once that shame gets into the ecosystem, it runs back into the shadow. It's just, it, right. you know, it's only in a climate of, you know, friendship for yourself that the, because the true self is shy, right? I mean, it, it, it's it been, you know, kind of hiding in the shadows a long time. And so you have to create the natural conditions for it to come out. And if anything, you've got to make sure that shame doesn't find its way into your gaze, um, in your inner gaze. Because if you do, that, that true self will not emerge. Right. 
yeah, I think we we need in order to go to, to rise to a higher level, uh, we need to be making a, an opening for that. And I think if we get caught up too quickly in shame or self criticism or fear, for that matter, we get trapped in the personality. We do, we, we don't allow ourselves the space uh, to rise above it. Mm. How do you help people? Because I think this often happens. Let's say you're a type one, the perfectionist. Yeah. You decide, okay, I'm going to go to work on myself. I'm really going to commit myself to the, to my work. And, but what you end up doing is applying the energy of the one, that perfectionist sort of side, to the work. So you're just like, I'm going to be a perfect, right. you know, I'm perfectly going to become someone who's not a right. perfectionist, you know, and or or I'm, if you're a three, it's going to be like, I'm going to be the most successful at not being a three. You, you know, you're just, you know, it's almost like the same consciousness that created the problem is trying to solve it. Right. You know, how do you not do that? Right, right. Well, I mean, I, th- I think one thing is to be on the lookout for the specific traps for each of the types. And when I work with the ones, one of the first things I say is, um, don't fall into the self-improvement trap because ones are naturally self-improvement oriented. And so they can o- they already usually are overdoing that, right? Being self-critical or trying to be perfect. And so one of the first things, especially if I'm working with someone as a therapist, one of the first things I'm pointing out constantly is when they're being hard on themselves, when they're crit- get falling into self-criticism and the beliefs around that, which are something uh, usually along the lines of, well, I have to be judging myself, otherwise I won't do it right. You know, and so just again, observing that. Wow. So there's a belief here that you need to be criticizing yourself. And can you see how that's actually self defeating? So, and, and yes, threes also have a trap. Like when they start to maybe do meditation, they're quote unquote doing meditation and not actually right. meditating. Right. So we need one of the, I think one of the big benefits of the Enneagram is it highlights all these potential traps for each of the types when they go on their own journey, which again is part of uh, sort of providing information about the blind spots of the type. And in this case, when we start to do work on ourselves, what we have to watch out for. So, okay, let's very quickly in a sentence or two each maybe, and you know, between the two of us, traps, I love that word, the traps that each type tends to fall into as they do their work, right? So each type is now asking the question, all right, I know my type, now what? Okay, well, we've now articulated, we're going to try and move from the false self to the true. And we've moved them through, you know, this process of self-observation and self-reflection and self-inquiry. And now let's just tell each type what is typically a trap that each falls into when they begin to do their work. Okay. Just run through them quick. Great. Yeah, yeah. And I would definitely feel free to help me with this. Um, So with ones, like we're saying, it's the being too hard on yourself in the self-observation process. It's not interrupting the inner critic. The funny thing about ones is they have to actually get worse when they're on a growth path, right? They actually have to be messy and not do it right and let themselves be, you know, in, in a way not so good. So that's really important for ones is not to be good and apply that as it, you know, because they fall into the trap of being too oriented towards self-correction, which they already are. Mm -hmm. Right. So how about, let me take a shot at twos. I know you're a two, so you're the expert on twos and you, you know, you can, I'm sure, come up with ones that are even more clear for people. But I would think for twos, the trap is to, first off, would be feeling like the work was selfish. Yeah, um, yeah, that they should be focusing on other people. Yeah, and of course the trap would also be maybe spending too much time with other people, right? right? Doing the work instead of spending time alone, where their attention can really only migrate to their own needs and feelings. Right. So you know, the, a trap for twos doing their own work is doing it with a lot of other people in the space with or, them, or focusing on others. I've had two clients come into therapy and they're talking about other people the whole time. Right, instead of right. focusing on themselves, and you're absolutely right. When they start to focus on themselves, isn't that selfish? Right, right, and it creates anxiety. It creates anxiety, absolutely. Yeah, to be the person on the couch and the, have the attention aimed at them in therapy is very uncomfortable for twos. Mm. Okay, you do threes. 
What's a trap? Can I do one more for twos, though? And this oh, is yeah, the, sure, of course. That's your, that's your wheelhouse. Here yes. Too. Very quickly is the pride. So sometimes twos have such a need to feel positive feelings about themselves, to walk around in the world. When they get into, when they first like read about the two description, they read something that they perceive as negative, um, automatically saying, oh, that's not me. Um, and like, I'm not manipulative or I'm not controlling or, you know, I just try to, I just do things for the greater good, not for myself. So, so it's, it can be hard for a two to see the blind spots because it makes them feel bad about themselves, but they need to sort of work through those feelings, um, in order to really see themselves clearly, I would say. Mm. All right, threes. You got threes. Traps for threes. Traps for threes. Well, for, for first of all, the, the biggest one is doing the self-work uh, in terms of seeing it as a series of tasks uh, to be accomplished and achieved. Uh, you know, I went to that 10-day meditation retreat or I, you know, I've, you know, got this certification in the Enneagram and they're actually not really doing the inner work because... Uh, the inner work for threes is getting to know themselves apart from their image, uh, getting to know how they really feel, getting to know what what's different than their image. And so sometimes I think twos can do workarounds around the personality work where they're just doing more doing instead of being. For three, it needs to be about getting in touch with feeling and being. And sometimes they get in the trap of just doing it, doing the work instead of really being uh, the change. Right. I, I can remember a, uh, a, a three saying to me that, that part of one of the traps as he was doing his work was seeing it as just another list, you know, a thing on his list to check off. Exactly. You know, here's my accomplishment of the day. I did that um, instead of, you know, so there, there's another example where, you know, you use the energy or the patterning of the three to address the problem of the three and it just doesn't work, right? Exactly. So, so I'm a four. And I think as I do my work, one of the traps that I have fallen into before is that as I get quiet and self-observe is I can, I can really become um, overly absorbed in my own feelings and self-evaluation. My, my interior world is so rich um, and my imagination is so rich. And so therapists love me, by the way. I mean, if I were your client, you would love me because I can come up. You ask me how I'm feeling, you, you can just leave the room. Because I'll just oh, talk. Uh, yes. I'll talk for the next hour. I'll come up with metaphors and stories and colors and you know spirit animals. Who knows what? I can go on forever. And and then I just get lost in it all. And and I just never extricate or disidentify with my feelings, which is where I live all the time. So that's a trap right. for me. Right. Yes. Yes. So fours need to come out. Mm-hmm. Right. They're too internal. It's the opposite of twos, where twos are too much on the outside. They need to come inside. Fours are too much in the inside and their fantasies and their feelings, and they need to put their attention out in the world and keep it there as much as they can, right? And and so I think you're absolutely right. Fours can get entranced by their own feelings and fantasies and inner world, uh, and it's important not to get lost there and to balance that out by by doing their work more out in the world, more connected to other people, more with their energy focused out. Okay, so you've got fives. You hit it with fives. Okay, so fives, sometimes I find that fives, if they've got the personality down, they don't really see that there's a problem, right? So they aren't motivated to do the inner work, right? Because if they've got their boundaries in place and they've got a lot of alone time and they, they aren't too involved emotionally with too many other people, things are cool. So for a five, it can be that one of the traps can be not really getting that they could live, they could have a better experience. They sort of get addicted to the comfort that they can be good at creating for themselves where they have privacy and space and time and not too many emotional entanglements with others or they've disconnected from their feelings in a regular way. Um, and so for fives, the trap can be not finding the motivation to really do the work of connecting more to their feelings in the moment, uh, connecting more to their feelings when they're with other people, sharing more of themselves with others, um, not being so boundaried some of the time, um, taking risks to get moved out of themselves uh, in ways that can feel kind of dangerous. Uh, and so it's sort of 
challenging the sense of safety they sometimes create on the personality level uh, where they don't really feel much of the need for inner work because uh, even though they may want more connections, it's sort of more comfortable not to. Yeah, and there's, there, yes, right, all that focus on self-sufficiency, right, and independence, and, and also the fives, though I think in many ways, the five is the most natural contemplative on the, on the Enneagram because, you know, they can, they're so analytical and they can detach, um, which is you know, it obviously has a downside, right. but they can detach and observe because they're such amazing observers. When they begin to do, for example, meditation work or centering prayer, they seem to have a leg up on people. And that's almost like they are almost to a fault, able to distance themselves from their own experience and observe it. And sometimes another trap for fives is uh, getting interested in a form of meditation that actually takes them further down the road their personality goes in terms of detaching from things. Uh, so some forms of, say, Buddhist meditation, um, you know, might might be okay for fives, but also might be too much of the same good thing. Uh, whereas for some fives, it might be really important to find a, maybe a form of meditation like yoga, where they get mm. into their body, for instance, yes, out right. of their yeah. head. Well, they are. They're so disembodied outside. You, you oftentimes feel the five that their brain is sort of to the side of looking down on the two of you having a conversation, you know, but not actually inside their bodies. So sixes, I find a trap they have as they begin to do their work is um, they have so many voices in their heads. It's so difficult for them. And all these voices are expressing vacillating opinions and doubts about things. And they don't trust their inner guidance system, so they're they're anxious, and, and all this ambivalence rushes in as they, you know, am I observing this correctly? Am I doing this right? Or, in in you know, the centering prayer or in that meditation work, all those voices start activating, and I, I think that's difficult for them. Definitely, definitely, and and the the thing about sixes that's sort of tricky is that the three six subtypes are the most different from one another. Uh, to the point where it's almost hard to talk about one six and one kind of trap. Mm -hmm. So I would say that traps for the three sixes, the three six subtypes, are are going to be a little bit different because what you've just right. described, so the, the self-preservation six, for instance, is the most doubting and questioning. And so for them, yes, one trap is just kind of going around in circles of doubt because you can always doubt everything and then you can doubt right. your doubt and it's hard to be certain of anything. Uh, the social six is a bit different in that they are more certain of things. In fact, they look for something, uh, an authority or, or a set of rules or reference points to find certainty to not feel anxious. So they can get actually, one trap they can get into is being too too adherent to a particular authority. So maybe they've given away their own power of discernment to maybe a religious authority or a spiritual tradition that is good in many ways, but that is not serving them in that they're not developing their own inner authority. So something like that, um, sort of outsourcing authority and not owning it. And then for this, the sexual six, which is the most aggressive six and the often the least actively fearful. So, so sexual sixes can be to sort of move into action very quickly and not allow themselves to experience the fear and vulnerability underneath uh, the things that they do. So that a trap for them is more around taking too much action, being too aggressive and not uh, slowing down and feeling the fear that's actually motivating them deeper down. Mm. So with sevens, I have a seven son who I absolutely adore. What, what's a trap that they fall into as they begin to do their work? Well, I think this, the main trap for sevens can be uh, needing everything to be very positive. Um, so sevens like to focus on the positives, which in many ways is a good thing. Um, and, and yet uh, it can be hard for them to do inner work when it starts leading them into difficult feelings, uh, when they need to sink into the present moment more and their automatic pattern is to you know, skip to different things in their head, to skip to the future, uh, to just move into a positive line of thinking uh, and not stay rooted and, and allow for whatever is true in the moment in. So for sevens, I think it's about learning to slow down and welcome in any experience, even if it's unpleasant or scary, 
and stick with it uh, because they can really move fast. A little bit like threes doing the different practices. Uh, sevens can get enamored with certain things, but not really be doing the work because they're not allowing themselves to sort of sink into something uncomfortable. Mm. Okay. And what do you think of eights? What's a trap for them as they do their work? Well, the big thing about eights is uh, not being in touch with their vulnerability. And often, and you know, the defense mechanism for eight is denial. Uh, and this is huge. And denial, again, is something where something is just not in your consciousness. It is completely denied. So um, sometimes eights, you know, the big work for eights is getting more in touch with vulnerable feelings. And they can feel like, well, I don't have any vulnerable feelings. There's a way that they don't allow themselves to access that kind of experience. So they can also often label it as weakness. And so I think the trap for eights is not realizing that it actually takes a great deal of strength to be vulnerable. I, I agree. Yeah. They're also, I think, they're not naturally self-reflective in my experience. They're such doers, such, you know, yes. they always making something happen. So stopping to be self-reflective to them just isn't a natural thing to do. That's right. And they can sometimes um, criticize people who are doing it. You know, like you, you don't sometimes, you, you often don't see eights coming to self-help workshops, for instance, uh, and they can have a, a justification or a rationalization of, well, that's for weak people, you know, in, in, in you know, maybe they don't say it in exactly those terms, uh, but it, that can be the sense of, like, and like you're saying, they're really caught up in what they're doing or the, what they're, the impact they're making in the world, and that's much more interesting to them. Sure. Well, you're going to see a lot of ones and fours at those self-help workshops, aren't you? <laughs> I think fours, twos, yeah, certain types you definitely see. Yeah. So I am married to a nine. I have a, a daughter who's a nine. Uh, I have a, a soft spot, obviously, in my heart for them. Yeah. Tell them what the traps are for them as they do their work. Well, the traps for them, I think, is um, not putting themselves in the picture. Sometimes I've seen people who will say, well, I'll do inner work for you, but not for myself, you know, so to please a partner, uh, but not because they want something in it for themselves. Um, nines are uh, naturally very other focused. Uh, and so they are, they tend to not be uh, very connected to their deeper sense of themselves uh, and again, they're the nine is the prototype for all of us of the going to sleep to yourself. And so they can be asleep to what they need to do. And so one of the things like when I work with nines, it's very difficult for them is when I ask them something like, well, what do you want? They don't know. And so the not knowing is uncomfortable in and of itself and sometimes painful. And so they can want to avoid even asking the question. And so one of the things I tell nines is to I support them in just continuing to ask the question, even if, and, and make, and letting them know that I don't know is a perfectly good answer. And that part of it is developing a comfort with not knowing uh, so that they can stick with it long enough that they can reestablish that connection to the, their deeper place of inner knowing. So maybe in closing, one of the things I would say that is important, and we were talking about how important community is as we do our work. Oftentimes when people do begin to do their work, it disturbs the system, right? We They start to try out new behaviors that are not only new to them, but it's new to everybody else. And so people will around them will sometimes unconsciously say, for example, let's say a two is beginning to do their work and they're, they're not saying yes to everything. They're not meeting everybody's needs. Well, you know, people around them are like, wait a minute. I liked it when you were doing that stuff, you know? And so there's this unconscious pressure. And, and one of the things that others need to do is allow people to do their work and to be very conscious of not uh, subtly pressuring them to go back to the way that things once were. And I think Thomas Merton had this beautiful quote. He says, the beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. So we just need to give people the space to do their work um, and uh, to cheer them on and encourage them. And uh, even when it's not necessarily convenient for us. And, and so... Beatrice, again, I just thank you. We've had you on for two shows. What a, an abundance of riches. 
and for everybody out there, uh, as I, I just really encourage you, if you've read The Road Back to You, or even if you haven't, but after you've done a primer, to go to the complete Enneagram, The 27 Paths to Greater Self-Knowledge, written by Beatrice Chestnut. It's my favorite Enneagram book. And, of course, uh, her other book, most uh, recently written, The Nine Types of Leadership, Mastering the Art of People in the 21st Century Workplace. Beatrice I am grateful for you, and I'm I'm grateful for our new friendship. Me too. Me too. I've loved uh, having this conversation with you. Great. Take care. Thank you. Friends, insight is cheap. That's what my therapist friend Pete says to me all the time, and he's right. Just knowing your Enneagram number might make you an interesting conversation partner at a cocktail party, but it won't lead to meaningful life change. So here are some practical takeaways from today's episode and some books you can read to help you make progress on the journey toward becoming your truest and best self. First, the Enneagram reveals that we don't know ourselves nearly as well as we'd like to think we do. So if you want to gain more self-knowledge, just use the descriptions of all the different types as a guide to compassionate self-observation. See if you can catch yourself when you fall into the self-limiting patterns of your particular personality. And when you do, say to yourself in a kind tone, and I mean in a kind and compassionate tone, oh, there I go again. Now, second, It's really difficult to do this work alone because it might involve looking at past losses or regrets, and for sure, it's going to involve owning your shadow. All to say, working on yourself is easier when you have a supportive community. So find a therapist, a spiritual director, or put together a small group of like-minded Enneagram students to share your challenges and triumphs. And third, Get to know the traps your type tends to fall into when they do their work. Trust me, this will save you lots and lots of time. If you don't remember your trap, you can go back in this episode and listen to Beatrice and I review them. And finally, it's vital to develop a contemplative practice to help you develop your powers of self-observation. And there are three books that really helped me learn about meditation and centering prayer. One is by Father Thomas Keating, and it's titled Open Heart, Open Mind. The second, which is really my favorite on learning contemplative prayer, is by Father Martin Laird, L-A-I-R-D, and it's titled Into the Silent Land. And finally, there's a book titled The Heart of Centering Prayer, and it's written by Cynthia Bourgeau, B-O-U-R-G-E-A-U-L-T-S. Well, that's all I have for today, my friends. If you have questions or suggestions for future episodes, you can go to the Connect page on our website, typologypodcast.com, and submit a comment. While you're there, you can also download a free chapter from my book called Finding Your Type, or you can download and listen to the episode titled Introducing Typology and the Enneagram. And you can also take my introductory Enneagram assessment there as well. These are great resources, particularly for beginning students of the Enneagram. Finally, if you like this show, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. It's a great way to help others find out about this show. Thanks to my pal and engineer today, Anthony Skinner, and my assistant, Wendy, without whose help I would be forced to look for an honest job, and we know how that would work out. Thanks for joining us this week. Until next time, remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken.